coming up on The Green from Delaware Public Media. There's no doubt kids love a snow day when one comes along. Snow days? I love snow days. They're amazing. Sometimes we actually need a snow day. But Delaware Public Media's Quinn Kirkpatrick reports this week on how remote learning could leave snow days out in the cold. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. We also examine launching Delaware's recreational marijuana industry with two key figures in that work. Arts Playlist previews a new Andrew Wyeth exhibition. And Enlighten Me offers an insider's look at working for Amazon. It's all next on The Green, where Delaware gets tuned into a first date of mine. But first, the news from NPR. Welcome to this week's edition of The Green on Delaware Public Media. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. Delaware's work to create a legal recreational marijuana industry is well underway. Leading those efforts is recently appointed marijuana commissioner Rob Koop, who is currently working to finalize recreational market regulations. His goal is to distribute all necessary business licenses in time to get the market up and running by March 2025. This week, Delaware Public Media's Sarah Petrowich sits down with Commissioner Koop to discuss that timeline and other issues. Give me an overview of the timeline for getting the recreational marijuana industry up and running. Like, what are we looking at right now? Sure. So some of the target dates are already established in the code. So they were established by HB2, and they appear in Delaware Code. The first goal that we have, though, is to get our rules and regs up and running. And our target date for that is July 11th of this year, 2024. Once that happens, then we move into the application phase. And that is targeted to start September 1st of 2024. And then from there, we progress into the issuance of licenses. So October 1st will be the target to start issuing licenses. And then the code specifically says November 1st for cultivation licenses. December 1st for our manufacturing licenses, and then March 1st of 2025 is the target for 30 retail licenses and five testing facility licenses. So there's 125 licenses in total to give out, right? Each for those different groups you were just talking about, different parts of the process, cultivation, manufacturing, testing, and then those retail locations. So 47 of those are designated to be social equity licenses. Can you explain what a social equity license is and how that application process is unique? A social equity license has specific criteria. And the criteria is that first, that the individual was either arrested for a marijuana-related crime or one of their relatives, immediate household member, was arrested for a marijuana-related crime up to a certain level that's referred to as Tier 3, which has a specific weight, would qualify. Another way to qualify is that they've resided for five of the last 10 years in an area that's identified as disproportionately impacted. And by that, it's defined in the code in that these are areas where there was a high amount of arrests, convictions, possibly confinements where the individuals were sentenced. And we have to create that map using data from DELGIS, which is, will be from police reports and arrest records. No personal information, just raw, uh, anonymized data. 
Uh, that data will be laid over a map, and then there'll be another overlay on the map, and that will be for census tracts. And then by census tracts, we should be able to identify areas that are considered a hotspot, and that'll give us our areas that are designated as disproportionately impacted. So we're working on that project right now. So they're working with us, and we're hoping to get that done in the next couple of weeks. Right. And your office is also currently looking into the possibility of a conversion license for established compassion centers, otherwise known as the medical marijuana retail locations. And this would allow those existing centers to begin selling recreational marijuana. And the potential positives could be that the recreational market is up and running sooner. And with the additional licensing fees, this could bring in more money for the state. Right. But the public has also brought up concerns for fairness of competition. And your office brought up the fact that these current locations may not be able to handle the influx in patients that quickly. So talk to me a little bit about this. And if you do decide to implement a conversion license, what are some potential steps that can be taken to mitigate these concerns? So, yes, the conversion license is a proposal that we've put forward to the members of the General Assembly. They're considering it because it will take legislative action. Currently, the way the legislation was written, the Adult Use Recreational Program operates independently of the Office of Medical Marijuana or the Medical Marijuana Program. It's not effective for either program to have those separate. The plan that we are proposing is to combine the Office of Medical Marijuana into our office at the Office of Marijuana Commissioner, combine them in, and then create a pathway for those license holders to come under us. And what we're proposing through a conversion license is that pathway where they would pay a specific fee, an application fee, for a conversion license, and that would bring them under the Office of the Marijuana Commissioner as far as their license goes and allow them to sell the product to medical patients and adult use recreational patients. Some of the concerns that were have been raised from the public, as you heard at the meeting, are that those medical marijuana licensees are already in the business and that we would be giving them an unfair advantage by, by giving them this conversion license. We're looking at it from our perspective as the state, and that is that that creates a, a really solid foundation for us for cultivation, manufacturing, and retail, as you pointed out. Currently in the state, there's 13 retailers in the medical marijuana field. So that gives us a good foundation to start with. And as you mentioned about the supply and demand, right now they're serving 17,000 customers. That's roughly how many are in our medical marijuana program, although that number is declining. They're providing for them. Even if they doubled their output, that's still under 40,000 people that they could serve. And we anticipate that we'll have at least 85,000 adult use recreational customers, probably more. So there's, there's still a lot to make up there. So we don't see them as taking the whole market, but they would be a supplement to it. We're also considering that their conversion licenses would not be part of the competitive license process that we were just talking about with the 125 licenses that are in the code. So they would be separate. They would be supplemental, so to speak, to those licenses. And the other thing that we're, we'll be able to do through this conversion process is control when they actually can start selling to the adult use market. So unlike what other states have done where they have converted those licenses immediately, they've started sales immediately to adult use recreational and medical customers, if we're not able to meet the market demands, our medical patients might not be able to get the marijuana that they're taking for medicinal purposes. So we don't want that to happen. We don't want folks to go to stores and have them to sell out. We don't want 
outrageously long lines because there's only 13 locations. So we see them as, as a supplement to the total, uh, prop, the total program, but we don't see them as a replacement. And the other thing we can control is the, the date we roll them out. So we can wait till some of the other licensees are ready. And when we decide that there's enough retailers, if we open, that it would be fair and we'll have a, a competitive market, then we can time the conversion license to be effective at that time. Thanks to Delaware Marijuana Commissioner Rob Coop for joining us on The Green this week. Another key voice on marijuana legalization in Delaware is Democratic State Representative Ed Ozinski. He was the primary sponsor of House Bill 2, which legalized recreational marijuana last year. And he's currently pursuing further legislation to expand access to medical marijuana and help kickstart the recreational market. Delaware Public Media's Sarah Petrowich also sat down with Osinski recently to talk about his upcoming cannabis bills and the impact of towns exercising their right to ban marijuana-related business. So you were the primary sponsor on the Marijuana Control Act, which legalized recreational marijuana in Delaware around the middle of 2023. We are slowly approaching a year since it's been enacted, but new timelines are implying dispensaries won't be operational until around next year, kind of around this time next year. So what has it been like watching the progression of this bill's implementation? And what are your thoughts on how that process has been developing? Well, since the bill took effect without the governor's signature, I have been pleased that he didn't hesitate and he appointed a commissioner, Commissioner Coop. And I've been very pleased with his progress. He has really hit the ground running. Him coming from law enforcement, his concern was that we made marijuana legal, but we did not have a legal market in place at the time. So he's been very full speed ahead in trying to get this up and running. And he's pointed out quite a few little technical changes in HB2, which we have worked together to get that drafted. And we might be filing that as soon as next week. And that's going to help him get the regulations complete and, and, and get the industry up and running. Another bill that you're currently sponsoring is House Bill 285, which is expanding access to medical marijuana in Delaware. It's passed in the House. It was by a vote of 26 yeses and 10 noes, so with some abstentions. Can you tell us a little bit about this bill, kind of the general idea, general points that it's hitting, and what you've heard from colleagues in terms of support for it? Well, we've heard from the Compassion Center operators throughout the process of getting HB1 and 2 passed that they were concerned the recreational market would harm the medical cannabis businesses in Delaware. So we do want to make sure we don't harm them with HB2. So we were listening to their concerns, and we think HB285 will address some of their issues until they can transition into the recreational. Since Maryland and New Jersey has went up, their, their recreational marijuana um, industry has opened up in, New, in Jersey and Maryland, they've seen a decline in medical patients already. So we, did, we made those changes to allow folks 65 and older to self-certify. If you're under 65, you can uh, go to any medical professional. We remove the list of de debilitating illnesses. And if a medical professional feels cannabis would help in, with their ailments, they can prescribe it. That's going to expand medical cardholders. And also, we're allowing them to have a one, two, and three-year card, which will reduce the cost because 
those that are under 65 still have to go to a medical professional, make an appointment, pay for the visit to get their card. So now they can get a card that would be up to three years if they want. And there was a little bit of, you know, maybe initial confusion or questions, I think, a lot about that self-certification for 65 and older. How have you seen the reception with your colleagues of allowing seniors to self-certify for medical marijuana? You know, not everybody understands cannabis, and I've been following it for almost eight years because I was working on this legislation. So I've read a lot of articles. I feel very confident that we're not putting Delawareans in danger by allowing this. But not all my colleagues have that understanding. So naturally, they're concerned. They feel this is a, a drug, and we're allowing somebody to basically self-prescribe without seeing a doctor. But I think as they learn and they understand this more, and we did have the support of our medical commissioner to make this change. So I think this is going to be a positive thing. And then once, like you said, in a year, we get recreational business up everybody's going to have access. The thing we wanted to do with patients 65 and older, by allowing them to self-certify, they can go to the dispensary, get medical, and they're not being charged a 15% tax. So it also saves our seniors some money for this. So transitioning back into recreational, you wrote an opinion piece on this about just sort of how a dozen municipalities in Sussex County roughly have already banned marijuana-related business, and we're also seeing that in Newcastle County now. And on top of all that, earlier this month, the Sussex County Council proposed that only certain zoning designations would allow cannabis facilities. So talk to me about the implications of these citywide bans on marijuana-related business and these new potential zoning ordinances and, and what they could mean for Delawareans trying to access recreational marijuana. Yeah, it does concern me. I mean, and I'm hearing their arguments or their reasonings bring back a lot of what I heard in debate when we tried to get legislation passed HB2. I think it's a lot of uh, not understanding cannabis, but I look at it as something that's actually safer than alcohol, but nobody's putting in special zoning ordinances for liquor stores or alcohol distribution. And plus, some of the communities in in Sussex County, the residents are so close to Maryland, they're going to be just driving them across state lines to purchase it if they don't allow it in their jurisdictions. So it is concerning, and I think it causes some problems. But we're going to try to work around that. Um, And then, you know, hopefully they'll realize once this gets up and running and they can go back and change their ordinances. And then finally, getting back to that cleanup bill you're talking about that you said could be proposed as early as next week or sometime soon, you know, talking about ways to change regulations in the industry or things that you guys have been working on to just clean up the initial Marijuana Control Act. What are some highlights there and like what can Delawareans be looking for? Well, one concern the commissioner has heard from other states is the Delaware residency requirement. There's been some big operators, nationwide operators, that feel that restricts them to entering the market in Delaware. These are multi-state operators. So they have filed uh, lawsuits against states that had residency requirements. We do have residency requirement language in HB2 because we felt we wanted to make sure that this legislation gave Delawareans an opportunity to get into this industry. So we are looking at language to basically remove that residency requirement. Thanks to State Representative Ed Osinski.
and our Sarah Petrovich for joining us on The Green this week. And stay with us. The Green continues in a moment with a look at the future of snow days now that remote learning is an option. You're listening to The Green on Delaware Public Media. This is The Green on Delaware Public Media, and I'm Tom Byrne. Earlier this year, Delaware saw its first significant snowfalls in some time, enough to affect kids getting to school. In the past, that would mean a snow day, an unscheduled day off for students. But this time, that wasn't the case for all students in the first date. Some still went to school online. This week, Delaware Public Media's Quinn Kirkpatrick explores how districts statewide are navigating the choice between giving kids a day off or implementing virtual learning when wintry weather hits. Falling snow has long been a welcome sight for students. Children may go to bed wearing their pajamas inside out with a spoon under their pillow, hoping a supernatural force will deliver a blanket of snow and they'll wake up to a call like this. Due to the winter weather advisory and the timing of the winter storm with a predicted accumulation of snow throughout the day, out of an abundance of caution, we've made the decision to close school for the Seaford School District today, Friday, January 19th, 2024. Please be safe and stay warm. But that same day in January, some students got this message instead. Based on the timing of the storm and the forecasted snow totals, we are changing our mode of instruction tomorrow. Friday, January 19th, from in-person to remote asynchronous learning. While the weather may have forced a pause in our regular schedule, it won't stop the learning. After the pandemic forced schools to move to virtual learning using applications like Zoom in tandem with online learning platforms like Schoology, the door opened to do the same during wintry weather. And that begs the question, could snow days become a thing of the past? In Delaware, students in kindergarten through 11th grade must have a minimum of 1,060 hours of instructional time each year. 12th graders need 1,032. After two weather-related school closings this year, Brandywine School District Deputy Superintendent Lisa Lawson says they chose to make the switch to remote learning. Work would be posted on our learning platform by a certain time of the morning, and then students would have not only the day, But in some cases, we allowed students to have the weekend because we're very sensitive to the fact that some older students are watching um, or responsible for caring for their siblings that are younger. And it's difficult to find quiet time to do homework if you're in that role. Superintendent Sharon DiGiorlamo says based on an agreement with their teachers union, the first two days are traditional snow days. And then anything after that, We could consider asynchronous learning, but we do have those additional days built into our calendar. So it would really only be necessary if we got multiple major weather events. You know, a blizzard closed down for five days in December, and then, oh my goodness, it happens again in January. At that time, we might consider asynchronous, but it simply doesn't happen that often. And so we haven't had to do that. When a district chooses to go remote rather than take a snow day, there are various ways to approach it, even within districts themselves. Lawson says the Brandywine School District doesn't require its youngest students to go on a learning platform to do work. They got already, prior to the inclement weather days 
activity packets, which are things that they can do with their families. Um, a, a nice example in our first grade packet was for students to go out and gather some snow, put it in a glass. It was much like a science experiment. Wait until it melts and then um, make some observations and, and those kinds of things. That's the kind of remote learning Christina School District kindergarten teacher Jessica Walsh wishes her students could take part in. Her district fully embraced remote learning on their last snow day, with all grades joining class on Zoom. It was a modified schedule, but it was a good chunk of time um, where we were on Zoom with the students. Now, along with that, I know in the upper grades, it's a little easier for them to access things posted on Schoology. In the lower grades, you know, this was a lot of prep work. Um, ahead of time in making sure that they all had their devices, their chargers, their headphones. There's a lot of hands-on to do in early elementary. So we had to gather together packets of, you know, the work papers we'd be doing, but also things like pencils and scissors and crayons and counters and manipulatives and things that, you know, we, we can't assume that students have um, access to them at home. Most of Walsh's students were able to access her Zoom class despite the little time they had to prepare. Were not, we did not penalize them if they were having, you know, a connectivity issue. And because we did send those paper supplies home, we were able to, you know, allow them to do something different so that they were not marked absent. But it definitely does put a strain on families. Most of my families were able to make it work, but, you know, I was receiving messages from families who were so stressed about it. Part of that stress comes from families facing different situations when the usual school routine has changed. Some need to go to work and find alternative care for their kids. Others may be able to stay home, but are working remotely. In either case, making sure children are paying attention in class and doing their schoolwork, while potentially troubleshooting internet issues or helping with other problems, can be challenging. Still, there is an argument that it's worth dealing with those challenges to keep kids learning. As schools continue working to recover from COVID learning loss, administrators like Lawson look to use all tools at their disposal to make every minute count. It is a mode of instruction. Is it the best mode of instruction, asynchronous learning, or even a Zoom calls, Zoom learning? I don't think it's the best way to learn, but I think it, it is an option in certain circumstances. But Walsh isn't sure replacing snow days with remote learning makes much of a difference. I do feel like there is a big push to, you know, quote unquote, make up for lost time um, from COVID. But I don't know that just plugging forward and taking out all of the time to just relax and just be, I don't think that that's the answer. Students offer similar sentiments. At Polytech High School, junior Paige Rosario says the virtual learning options can't compare to in-person learning. If you're learning in school, like, you could do more hands-on and visual stuff, and it's like, there's less internet issues. But like, when it comes to Zoom, it kind of feels like you're not retaining anything because it's just so like boring and you're not with your classmates. Like you don't even get to socialize. That's what doesn't make it fun. Polytech junior Renee Marklin wants a break. The whole point of snow days is that we don't come to school. You know, the roads are icy. It's unsafe for us to go to school. So I get the reason why we would go online, but I, I think it kind of just defeats the purpose of having a snow day. Either way, we're entitled to a break. <laughs> so it kind of just defeats the purpose. And Walsh says snow days can be beneficial. They allow for rest and can offer opportunities to learn outside of the classroom. Teaching kindergarten, one of my main focuses is learning through play and the importance of play. And to me, that's not just in the classroom. Kids need time to explore their world through play. And one of those ways 
definitely can be snow days. Snow days also have sentimental value. Seaford's Di Girolamo looks at them fondly. I think it's a fun break for kids. I think that kind of surprise day off is something I used to look forward to as a student. It's a sentiment Lawson says is worth preserving as a rite of passage for kids. We believe that we've got to honor that and cherish that and allow students to just call snow day and grab their coat and and gloves and get out there and and have a good time. So we will keep that always here in Brandywine, at least as far as I'm concerned. I I don't see us changing that. So while the weather this year gave districts the opportunity to try their hand at remote instruction once again, it doesn't look like Delaware will completely do away with snow days anytime soon. Quinn Kirkpatrick, Delaware Public Media. Thanks, Quinn. Up next, Arts Playlist, and a look at a new Andrew Wyeth exhibition at the Brandywine River Museum of Art. You're listening to The Green on Delaware Public Media. Welcome back to The Green on Delaware Public Media. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. A new exhibition, Every Leaf and Twig, Andrew Wyeth's Botanical Imagination, is now officially open to the public at the Brandywine River Museum of Art. The exhibition centers on Andrew Wyeth's interest in plant life, and most of the 40 watercolors and drawings on view have never been exhibited before. In this edition of Art's Playlist, Delaware Public Media's Carl Lengel is joined by William Coleman, the Brandywine's Wyeth Foundation Curator and Director of the Andrew and Betsy Wyeth Study Center, to learn more about Every Leaf and Twig. The Every Leaf and Twig exhibit uniquely focuses on Andrew Wyeth's interest in plant life. Most of the 40 watercolors and drawings that are on view have never been exhibited before. This is brand new, so let's start with his interest in the botanical side of life. Makes sense to me. Sitting with people is a little difficult. They're kind of picky, they're impatient, but a plant just sits there and looks beautiful or looks the way the painter wants to put it. Where did, that, right. where did that interest that he is exhibiting here, where did that come from? That's exactly right. This plant subject matter is, is seemingly inert, placid, simple, but he finds all these unexpected stories in uh, the ordinary uh, botanical subject matter of our, our wider region. We think of Andrew Wyeth as a painter of great sweeping realist works in that thorny medium of egg tempera, but this is a, an altogether unexpected side of his practice, these beautiful uh, botanical watercolors zooming in rather than zooming out um, as he walked around this uh, fairly narrowly circumscribed region, just about two mile radius around uh, Chadsford, Pennsylvania. In his career, when did this come? Was this over the entire span or was it something that he just kind of went into a bubble and went, wow, this is, I'm going to work this for a while? It's a good question. We found that this really spans his whole career, um, and it goes in many different directions. Um, These individual specimens of plant life provide inspiration for any number of projects. Some end up taking life as uh, a life-size tempera painting hanging grandly on a museum wall somewhere. Others never found an afterlife beyond these um, sheets of paper we're putting on the wall for the first time. Uh, They seem to have come out of his fundamentally pedestrian practice, walking this landscape, coming to know it deeply, coming to know the trees and plants of the region intimately over uh, the cycles of the natural world. 
Obviously, there's a regional kind of focus because that's what grows in the area. But were there specific plants within that, trees maybe that he, or, or flowers that he was drawn to um, over and over again? One thing that has come out of uh, consultation for this project with our colleagues in the Brandywine Conservancy, the other half of our organization, has been a recognition that he was drawn to plants that uh, exhibit an interesting phenomenon, a word I'd recently learned, marcescence. Marcescence is when a plant retains its leaves into the winter. So he was drawn to things like the beech tree that hold on to their crinkly brown leaves into the, the dry, cold time of the year and have this shimmering, interesting surface. Um, another that comes up often is corn. Ordinary corn stalks turn out to be a really fascinating and rich subject for him. Uh, one of my favorite things in the exhibition is this illustrated letter to his mother and father-in-law in which he, over six pages, walks them through the way this unusual brain works responding to dry, dead corn stalks in November, just before Thanksgiving, and ending up at a vision of knights on horseback with banners fluttering in the breeze. It's really fascinating. The paintings tell stories. Uh, he was very good at this. Let's talk just a little bit about the exhibit and work our way through it, kind of the stories that we're going to see as you go through the exhibit. Our subtitle um, goes right to that point you're making, Andrew Wyatt's Botanical Imagination. And we are on a mission here at the Brandywine to challenge received wisdom about this beloved artist of our region. One bit of baggage that many of us carry is that Andrew Wyeth was really realistic, very good at painting what he saw, and I think we underestimate the extent to which he was a visionary and a poet in paint, um, driven by this really original mind uh, and, and creativity learned at the feet of his dad, the, the famous artist N.C. Wyeth. Um, that imagination drives all he does, and we see that on the walls of this show. An apple tree, um, skunk cabbage, a plant called uh, Jack in the Wood, um, all these ordinary little plants of the, the undergrowth of our region give him the inspiration he needs to leap off to these strange, skeletal, eerie forms that might evoke the human body, that might evoke stories of, of chivalry uh, past, as I mentioned in that letter. Um, we, we look through his eyes in these studies and you see that creative process, how just walking slowly, meditatively, recursively, coming back again and again to a favorite tree, a favorite plant. Um, he finds all this depth and layers within them. Is it your sense that he was reaching out with a message for preservation in all of this? Just kind of, if you're going to walk and take a look at it, let's remember it, but let's remember it longer than that moment or that story that we're walking away with. Let's remember it for a good time. Is preservation one of, uh, you think, one of the intents in his approach to this? I think so. That's a really complicated topic in Wyeth's work. It is the case that the Wyeth family was central to the founding of the Brandywine Conservancy. They were worried about the future of this fragile ecosystem as development pressures from Wilmington and Philadelphia encroached on us somewhere in the middle. Um, there is that impulse the, to um, preserve this, this ecosystem uh, as he enjoyed it. Uh, and I think there's another layer here. And one of the things that inspires this exhibition is looking back at the subjects Andrew Wyeth captured as they are being impacted by severe flooding and ever more extreme weather. Uh, the Brandywine flood of uh, September 2021 is always on our minds here. 
Um, some of those trees and plants he painted on the bank of the Brandywine Creek uh, were impacted by that event. And so he captures a moment in time. He gives us a model of attunement to the natural world around us that I think will be important going forward. It sounds like every leaf and twig is a very appropriate name because we're considering every leaf and twig in this. Yeah, there, there is that uh, unexpected honing in on the humble subject matter, one ordinary branch, and he finds this infinite variety of form and pattern, interesting compositions in those things we might otherwise overlook. And I should mention the, the source of our title there um, is the influential book Walden by Henry David Thoreau. The, the family legend goes that Thoreau was born exactly 100 years to the day before Andrew Wyeth, and so the two men were cosmically linked in the way they inhabited the natural world and came to understand its, its fragile rhythms intimately. Tell us a little bit about making the choices, and particularly because you have new things that a lot of the public have never seen before. The listeners to your program are in the driver's seat in our region for a really exciting new era. Uh, the Brandywine has been entrusted with this 7,000 object collection of the Wyeth Foundation for American Art. This is the private collection of the family, uh, most of which has never been seen publicly before. Um, so as you say, we have a really exciting opportunity to make choices, to go through um, these incredible objects and to choose what we show, um, even as we work to preserve them for generations to come. Many of these artworks are very light sensitive, so they will not be parked on a wall for years and years. They will rotate continually. We'll keep on having new things to share, but there's a whole team here that is diving into that challenge, making sure these things are, are stored under the tightest uh, climate control and, and light exposure conditions. And um, we're, we have a whole team doing research on them, learning ever more about them and, and working to share them not only in this region, but also uh, nationally and internationally. 7,000 items. It must have been difficult many times to just go, okay, this one makes it, this one doesn't. Uh, I do not envy your position at all. <laughs> it's a really nice problem to have. And, and one of the uh, assets we have here is um, the legacy of an underrated gift of the Wyeth family, which was their gift for human resources, finding wonderful people who invested in that mission with them. And some of those people who were employees directly of the Wyeth family became Brandywine employees working with me on July 1, 2022. So that legacy knowledge has been inherited by this great museum of our region. Um, they know the stories of these objects. They were there when it happened, and they're helping us to, to bring that story to the public. So as we're longing for the beautiful spring weather to get to us sooner <laughs> rather than later, every leaf and twig can be some inspiration. How long do we uh, get a chance to see this? Uh, this will be up through September, um, and uh, there's another secret coming that I'll tease here. It will have a third venue, which is going to be very exciting. We can't announce that yet. Got to get the final uh, signature on the paper, but um, this show has uh, turned some heads nationwide, and um, there will be travel of this exhibition later. But to see it at uh, the Brandywine, you have to come before September. Thanks to Brandywine River Museum of Art curator William Coleman and our Carl Lengel for joining us on this latest edition of Arts Playlist. And we wrap up The Green next with Enlighten Me and our conversation with the author of a new book offering an insider's view of working at Amazon. This is The Green on Delaware Public Media.
Thanks for spending time with us on The Green this week. I'm Tom Byrne. Amazon is one of the largest employers in Delaware and worldwide, but little is known about how it operates or the people who make up the tech giant outside of founder Jeff Bezos. That is, until now. After spending 12 years at Amazon, Christy Coulter wrote about her time there as one of the company's only female executives in her new book, Exit Interview, The Life and Death of My Ambitious Career. In this edition of Enlighten Me, Delaware Public Media's Kyle McKinnon talks with Coulter about her experiences working at Amazon. You've published two memoirs, Nothing Good Can Come of This, in 2018, and now you have Exit Interview, which was published last year, and that's about Amazon and your 12-year career as an executive there. Um, It's insightful. It's informative. It's funny. Uh, It's a distinct read all around, which seems to reflect your distinct time there, your distinct career there, Christy. (laughs) But, you know, I I, want to work a a little bit backward here. I read that you said at at some point with Exit Interview, you realized this is a story of someone who outgrows Amazon and rescues herself from it. So, you know, I want to start there. What spurred you to pour all of this out into this book? Was it a collection of moments, feelings? What did that decision making look like for you? Yeah, it's funny, you know, when I was working at Amazon, it's just the place you work. It's like any office, you go and you see the same 25 people every day. And, and it was only when I left that I started to really internalize what a weird place it is, you know, that it's not really like a lot of other companies. And also that, um, you know, there's a lot of things people misunderstand about it from the outside. You know, it looks one way. And I thought, you know, I always wanted people to know what it felt like inside. And I realized, oh, I could actually just tell them. (laughs) I could write a book and tell them what it felt like. Um, And it really was kind of an accumulation of small moments in my head that led up to this story about what it was like to be at this place during a time of explosive growth and change. I mean, that was the other thing is that very few people have that kind of close-up view to a company going from, you know, a very, very famous retailer to one of, to, I think the largest company in the world or or very close to it. And I was like, you know, a real writer needs to write this, not, not, you know, like a literary writer needs to tell the story of the inside. And you're probably the person to do that. There'd been some good reporting on Amazon, some good business books, but there hadn't been like a interior look. You know, it's part of why I think your book is, is, is really resonating because it feels like many of the inner workings and methodologies of Amazon are meant to be top secret, uh, not to sound too hyperbolic there, but um, <laughs> no. you, know, you got there in 2006. So obviously, as you just said, well before Amazon was the Amazon we know it as today. For our listeners, at least, can you give us a snapshot of what it was like when you got there, um, when you first arrived? There's some really gro- great uh, anecdotes and all that in the book about that. But yeah. just for our listeners, what your early years of the company looked like when you first got there? Yeah, when I arrived at Amazon, I would estimate there were probably like 5,000 employees in Seattle. And that was by far the biggest place I'd ever worked. So I was like, this is insane. <laughs> you know, It's like a planet. And it was absolute chaos. I mean... It's a bunch of really smart people running around like chickens with their heads cut off, just trying to keep up with how fast things are changing and changing demands. And you really just get in there and everyone's really nice, but they don't have time to help you because they're so overwhelmed themselves. So I spent the first year just trying to stay afloat and learn by osmosis how to do my job. 
it was just absolute madness. And then what happens is you gradually, as with any company, you start to learn all the acronyms and, you know, all the vocabulary and the way things are done. And you do start to feel like you have a handle on, you know, your own job. And, and just at that moment, like three months into my time at Amazon, I was reorged out of my job and I was put into a much larger one. So every time I would start to feel like, okay, I know what I'm doing. It would be like, well, guess what? <laughs> We're going to move you into an area where you don't know what you're doing. And I think that's true for a lot of people there. And that could be, honestly, for the right kind of person, um, kind of exhilarating. Like I grew to love feeling like I was in over my head a little bit. I I, I kind of thrive on that feeling. Mm. Well, yeah. w- women in the workforce is a huge theme, I think, of the book. You almost look at the book is almost like spliced into two lenses almost. You described, you know, long hours and weekend work and, and midnight emails, all the norm for the employees you managed. Uh, ditto with these hard conversations among female Amazon employees. And you've made an interesting point here. And I quote, um, I found managing women to be exhausting because of the crippling insecurity. These are brilliant women. They were so good at their jobs, often better at their jobs than the men I managed were at theirs. But they needed so much propping up because they were so insecure. Can you tell us more about that and that piece of things here? So yeah, women, it's a very male-dominated company. Um, Women and men are about at equal levels, at entry level in corporate. And then once you hit manager level, women start disappearing and it just gets to be smaller and smaller representation from there. So at my level, I think it was about 25% female. So there just aren't a lot of women in leadership. And Amazon is very good at finding people who are desperate to please and really insecure about their own abilities. Like I think it thrives on hiring those types of people. It was once described as the place where overachievers go to feel bad about themselves, which really resonated with me. I wish I'd come up with that. And um. And the women in particular, I found, I managed many men and many women, and the women were especially insecure. I think that the kind of women who could make it at Amazon are so hard driving and so susceptible to that culture of fear that it actually was harder for me to manage them emotionally than than it was to manage men. It took a lot more emotional labor. And it was an interesting position to be in because I love managing women and developing women. And yet I would start to dread it sometimes because there was nothing I could say that would make them feel valuable or even adequate. <laughs> you know, like the women were constantly convinced they were about to be fired. Um, whereas I could have some men, I mean, most of the men I managed were fantastic, but I could have some men who really were not that great, who were just like, hey, you know, everything's going really well here. And, and I couldn't really get through to them to say, no, there's really some things you need to work on. So it it surprised me and it it made me sad that I had such emotional difficulty working with women because the women were so ground down and so self-loathing really. And, and Amazon really benefited from that, at least in the short term. I read a review of exit interview in the New York times and uh, forgive me, don't remember who the writer is, but he posed he or she posed at the end of it, essentially asking is Amazon sexism unique in this context? And if not, than what makes Amazon so uniquely toxic. What mm-hmm. what do you make of, you know, of that? 
I thought that was an interesting question. I remember that. I don't think it's uniquely sexist. I think that it is a common kind of sexism that exists in tech where the environment is professional. You know, it's not like this blatant 1950s style sexism, but there's such a belief in what they call meritocracy that no one realizes meritocracy is a system built by men that tends to promote other men. <laughs> you know, it's similarity bias, it's unconscious bias. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of unconscious sexism. I think what makes Amazon uniquely toxic is just, if it is, you know, I haven't worked at the other tech companies, it's just the uniquely punitive atmosphere, um, you know, extreme austerity, um, extreme frugality. It's basically, at times I felt like I was being dared to get my job done. You know, I remember taking my laptop in, it was three and a half years old or something. And it was basically taking 15 minutes to boot up and I every day <laughs> and, and it was shutting down randomly sometimes. And I was like, you know, what can you do for me? And they were like, well, you know, not much because you've got to get to your four year life cycle before we can do anything, before we can give you a new one. And I was just like, you know, come on, it's not working. <laughs> like it's, I need a computer. Do you want me to do this job or not? And that was what life at Amazon was like all the time. Like you would see computers patched with duct tape and, and people in, you know, open plan seating with conversations all around them. And it's just, it was not a place where you felt like the company was interested in helping you to give your best. You got there in 2006 and now yeah. you have this book. But when you left the company in 2018, you didn't even get, you know, you didn't get an in-person meeting um, when you mm -hmm. left Amazon 2018, you got a, a link to fill out um, a form. Uh, yeah. So can you tell <laughs> us about uh, that form and how your time uh, ended at uh, Amazon? Yeah, I finally decided to walk away. I, I had a manager who, who, you know, layered me, basically put me another year away from promotion. I had been told six or seven times in 12 years that I was a year from the really big promotion you can get at Amazon. And it happened one more time. And, and I just thought, you know, I just can't do this anymore. I had my first book coming out. I had something to move on to. So, you know, I put in my, my, I think I gave a month's notice and um, the last day, and I assumed I would have an in-person exit interview as someone who had been there again, literally more than 99% of all employees. And I didn't get one. They sent me this form to fill out. And I was kind of like, come on guys, but okay, I'll fill out your form. And I spent a couple hours filling it out and I hit, you know, send, gave them very honest, thoughtful feedback. And it just spun, you know, I saw the, like the spinning hourglass of doom um, from, from windows and um, it didn't go through. It, it vanished into the ether. And by the time I sort of reloaded, I had been cut off from the network because five o'clock had come. And I just couldn't believe it. I thought this is my exit interview. And I, I laughed, honestly, because it just seemed so perfect that no human wanted to talk to me about my experiences and the technology, which, you know, Amazon's internal technology is not the same as what customers see. Like it's really hacky and really wonky. It's much better than it used to be. But I thought this is just perfect. This is perfect for the way that I'm leaving Amazon. But I also kind of thought I'm going to want I'm going to want to make my own exit interview somehow. Maybe that's the moment the idea for the book was born. Thanks to author and former Amazon executive Christy Coulter and our Kyle McKinnon for enlightening us this week.
And that's all we have time for on this edition of The Green. The stories and interviews you've heard are online right now at DelawarePublic.org. Just head to The Green's page on our website. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter there by clicking Newsletters at the top of the page. And remember, The Green is also available via podcast at our website, as well as Apple Podcasts and the NPR and Delaware Public Media apps. We'd also like to hear from you. Give us your feedback and story ideas on our Facebook page or by emailing us at thegreen at DelawarePublic.org. Thanks to all those who helped make this week's show possible. Delaware Public Media's Quinn Kirkpatrick, Carl Lengel, and Sarah Petrovich, as well as our show producer, Kyle McKinnon. For all of them and the rest of the staff here at Delaware Public Media, I'm Tom Bernstein. Thanks for joining us this week. And we'll see you again next week on The Green, where Delawareans get tuned into a first state of mind.